Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my writing on tech at techuplife.com, and I write about film over at cupofmo.com. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we would also appreciate if you went over to iTunes, the Google Play Store, or whatever your favorite podcast app is, and go ahead and follow us as well as leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you haven't already done so, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Celluloid Fiends and on Instagram at Celluloid Fiends Pod. And tonight I am joined by... Hello, Celluloid Fiends. It's your old pal, Wes Clifton. I am a writer, I'm a musician, and I am the most noble Duke of Movieton. Uh, you can check me out on social media. I'm on Instagram at Cliff Weston. And if you'd like to check out some of my fiction writing, that would be most wonderful of you. You can find that over at wdclifton.wordpress.com. And it is absolutely wonderful to be back in the virtual studio together. I am thrilled. And, uh, it's, it's been a while. We've been on a little hiatus but we're we're back again, and so we probably each have a lot of movies that we have been watching and have picked up recently. Yeah, I'm assuming everybody at home just launched the song "The Boys Are Back in Town" and are listening to that right now. So you know. So what have you? watched recently and what have you picked up on physical media man oh man like you said it's been a pretty good while so i'm not gonna make our uh dear listeners sit through every single thing (laughs) that i've been watching uh lately so i'll just kind of name off some highlights uh i'll start off with a with a tv series that i really liked uh i got on kind of a crime kick and which happens to me a lot and i watched this show that i'd never even heard of before it's on netflix it's called top boy uh, it's a British crime kind of gangster show. Uh, and when I say gangster, it's like it's like current day, you know, kind of uh, in the city of London uh, about these differing gangs and, and kind of the drug trafficking that went on and that goes on. And uh, anyway, it's just a great crime drama. It reminded me a lot of The Wire. Um, it was just really good. There's there's two separate almost it looks like shows on there. I found out later on if you go to watch it on Netflix, I found out later on that Top Boy Summer House is actually the original program and they just renamed it um, when they kind of brought it over to the United States. And then now that Netflix has taken it over, they call what's really the third season is, is they have as a separate thing and they call it Top Boy by itself. So that was really awesome. Um, have you heard of that at all, Mo? No, I've never heard of that. But I might have to check it out. It was it was really great. I mean, just really well acted. I, I, it was something I'd never heard of, and I just kind of randomly saw it on Netflix and clicked it, and it was just amazing. Uh, and it's not really that long either, so uh, 
Yeah, you know how the British shows are. They get in and they get out. Uh, and then in terms of movies, I was on a, <laughs> I guess all the things I'm about to talk about are going to indicate that I've been on a big uh, Japanese film watching kick. And so I watched all of the five original uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity uh films those are a lot of times people refer to those as sort of the japanese version of the godfather they're these um the series of films about the rise of essentially a couple different yakuza families in japan following world war ii and it just cover like a 10 to i guess probably more like well i guess it's more like 30 year time period uh of the in, the struggles between all these yakuza families uh they're just really wonderful movies uh they are great drama uh great action just a great score i really liked them i can't say enough about it i'm a big fan of the godfather and i think that the japanese godfather moniker uh, is a good fit for those so i uh, highly recommend that and then in terms of keeping on my japanese film watching kick i got on a real j horror kick the past week or so i really just kind of sidestepped that whole J-horror trend back in the day uh, when it was really popular over here uh, in the early 2000s. I watched The Ring, the American version, back in theaters, and I really liked it. But then I just kind of, I didn't watch The Grudge. I didn't really get into that whole thing. And recently, um, I watched Ringu and Juan, um, which are the original Japanese versions of The Ring and The Grudge. And just, they were, they were so good. I, I really liked them quite a bit. Um, have you, and remind me, Mo, have you seen either of those? So there's one of them I have, I can't remember which one and one of them I haven't. Yeah. Whichever one it was, it was a while back. Yeah. And I've watched a number of others, including Shudder. Ooh, I don't know that. Yeah, that one's, that one's excellent. And I even, I'm even one of those people who tends to like the, Americanized J horror sure films yeah. those adaptations because I think there's often a at times quite a different and, and kind of beautiful as well as haunting visual take especially with like the original ring the American yeah. version uh, and some stuff like that but yeah those tend to kind of get a, a, a little bit of a bad rap as it is for some reason, which I don't really know. And I guess I've been guilty of that myself. Cause I just said, I wasn't ever really into it, even though I liked the first, um, the ring. And by the way, the, you were talking about liking the American versions. I mean, I've never seen the American grudge. I'll have to get to it soon, but that's directed by the original, you know, Japanese director of Juan. So it's, you know, I could imagine that it would be quite good. I just haven't seen that one, but I just really thought they were great. I mean, Ringu had this great, uh, mystery kind of uh, vibe going on underneath all the horror, which was awesome because I love a good mystery story. And then Juan was just crazy. It was surrealistic and nightmarish and uh, very creepy. And I just really, really liked it very much. Um, so that's what I've been watching. And in terms of pickups, I won't go on too long, but I have, uh, I have invested in some 4K Blu-rays. I'm starting my 4K Blu-ray collection. You uh, had talked about getting into them and you the way you made them sound they sounded so great so i invested in some and uh so far let's see i invested in um jaws and hostiles which i hostiles is a newer western that i mentioned on the podcast before two of my just movies i love so much and so those were the two i started with then i invested in uh suspiria uh the original and terminator 2 
uh, to get things started on my 4K collection. So that's kind of what I've been picking up lately. I have not seen Hostiles, but all of the others are phenomenal on pretty much any format, but especially on on 4K Blu-ray. Like when I popped in my 4K Blu-ray of Jaws, I don't know if you've seen yours yet, but it was like experiencing the movie anew. Yeah, I actually haven't watched the 4K <laughs> transfer yet, uh, but I'm I'm really excited about watching that, and, and I'm very excited about getting around to the 4K uh, Suspiria. You and I were talking before we went on mic just about how that movie is already so visually beautiful. Anyway, I can't wait to see uh, see it in 4K. That's going to be some just pure eye candy. Can't wait. Cannot wait. So, how about you, man? What have you uh, been up to in terms of your watching and pickups? So recently I ended up watching Scotland PA, which is a modern day telling of Macbeth. And it's super quirky and campy and kind of almost Coen Brothers style. And it has Christopher Walken in it. I would highly recommend that one. Never even heard of it. Uh, It came out, I want to say in the maybe mid to late 90s. So it's, it's not exactly a new film, but... It, it was it was quite good, and I think it won some award, uh, some film fest awards, but I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, so I watched that. I ended up finally getting around to watching Midnight Special, which is one that it's a sci-fi film. It came out a few years back, and it looked really intriguing to me when it came out. The trailer just looked very enticing, but I somehow kind of missed it, and I realized it was on Netflix. So I. Uh, pulled that one up and i thought it was pretty good it definitely kind of had a lot in common with with like some spielberg films it had that kind of spielbergian adventure element to it but i still felt like it kind of overall differentiated itself and did something kind of fresh with the sci-fi genre and Uh, I feel like I've watched some other stuff. Oh, yeah. So I ended up watching Jurassic World, which I had already seen. And then I watched Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which I had not seen. And those were on 4K Blu-ray. Oh, nice. Uh, So that was a lot of fun. Uh, In terms of recent pickups, uh, I ended up getting a couple of 4K Blu-rays. This was kind of around Christmas time and there were some sales. But I picked up the Rambo Complete Collection on steelbook 4k blu-ray love that which was that was that was an an excellent investment i must say i haven't even gotten around to watching those yet uh but i might i might even pick one as a future episode as an excuse to revisit the whole franchise Uh, and i picked up the lord of the rings trilogy as well as the hobbit trilogy on 4k blu-ray nice i'm I'm sure all those look amazing i'm I'm really jealous of that Rambo <laughs> set. I need to. I need to get in on that. You know, uh, our friend Donnie and I. We went when the last Rambo movie came out. We went to the Alamo Draft House and they showed all all of them. What are there five now? Uh, they showed all five of them in a row. So we just saw all five of them in the theater in a row. It was a really wild day. Is that the most films that you've seen in one day in a theater? You know, maybe. Uh, I'm trying to remember because you and I um, have often gone to splatter flicks at the Carolina Theater, and uh, the first year or two of that, I got a 10 pass and saw 10 movies over the course of the weekend, but I don't know that I ever saw five movies in one day. So yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. 
Yeah, because I was thinking uh, the two of us in the before times would pretty regularly go to a lot of those film fests at the Carolina Theater, like Splatter Flicks. And I would usually get a kind of a festival pass, like with 10 passes, but I don't know that I ever saw five in one day there. The The only time that I think I've seen five in one day was the release of, I think, Captain America Civil War. Oh, and yeah. I went and I got to watch. It started with Captain America, the first Avenger, and it was all of the Captain Americas up until that point, as well as the two Avengers films that had been released at, oh, that, wow. at that time. So it was five movies in, wow. in one day. Yeah, those are long movies, right? Yeah. So I got there. I had to wake up to get there at like 6 a.m. or something like that. I took the day off of work. I took like a, a vacation day so that I could do this. It was a lot of fun. Wow. Man, that's, <laughs> that sounds pretty awesome, though. Yeah. It, it was some dedication. <laughs> and now, our feature presentation. And tonight we are talking about the 1989 Henry V. This movie is directed by Kenneth Branagh and it is written by William Shakespeare, although adapted for the screen by Kenneth Branagh, who also stars in the film as the titular King Henry V. The plot follows Henry V uh, as he is in the 15th century. I think it was 1415 to be exact. And the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Eli convince a young King Henry to invade France on the grounds that Henry is the rightful heir to the throne of France because the Salic law in France preventing him from assuming the throne is unjust. Henry, with the support of the nobility, including Exeter and Westmoreland, decides to declare war on France because his claim to the throne is not accepted. And when the French Dauphine's representative, Montjoy, brings Henry a chest of tennis balls as a mocking response, Henry's assault on France begins to take shape. So this was a mopic. Indeed. And had you seen this one before? You know, I don't think that I had. So I I feel very classy talking about this movie, by the way. Can I just say, I feel like I should keep my pinky up the whole time. I uh, feel like this is a, a high art episode. But no, I, I don't. I had not seen it. I had seen, um, well, if I did, I didn't remember. Back in, in the day when we studied Shakespeare in high school, uh, I watched at least one of Branagh's movies. I'm relatively sure it was his Hamlet. Um, which I remember really enjoying, but no, I I don't think I'd ever seen this one. Not that not that I can remember. I had seen this one. The only time that I have watched it before this was actually in a high school English class, so it has been quite a while. And I wanted to revisit this because uh, I'm a big Shakespeare fan. I studied English lit in university. And I also just really appreciate Shakespeare's influence on storytelling, both written as well as visual, a lot of influence in film. 
And I thought it would be kind of neat to talk about that as well as kind of look at Brana a little bit because he has had quite an interesting trajectory from kind of starting out uh, directing and, and acting in a lot of Shakespearean adaptations to then directing stuff like the first Thor film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Which I didn't even realize that he had done that until recently. Somebody mentioned that. I was like, oh, I didn't even somehow realize that that was him. Yeah. And I I feel like one thing that you get with that, because you wouldn't necessarily, especially if you're familiar with like early Branagh stuff, associate Thor with his early works. But you can kind of see why that made sense as a choice for a director. And it's because he brings this kind of regality to the film. And there's kind of a lot of Shakespearean acting in that, especially in the scenes in Asgard. I would have a hard time discussing that movie. People are going to be so mad at me, but I have tried to watch it twice and have never (laughs) made it through the first Thor movie. So I know very little about it. Whoops. It's so I'd say that one is worth kind of giving it a shot. But what's kind of crazy to me is Henry V was Brano's directorial debut. I did not know that. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, that's a that's a really tough choice as a first film to make. And he he did a phenomenal job with it. This actually has a 100 percent critic rating and an 89 percent audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And I recalled that it had a, a pretty decent critical reception, but I didn't think it was going to be a hundred percent. I mean, have we have we done anything uh, that had a one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes? Yes, in fact. Uh didn't Deep Red? Uh, you, did it? You know what? It may have. I think so. <laughs> Which that that deserves a one hundred percent. It surely does. Uh but you know, in terms of Henry V, I feel like he made a good choice. I'm I think that the source material is pretty popular, if if I'm not mistaken. I think that the source material that he based it on is uh is pretty well received. It is very popular. Yeah. In fact, some it's guy, one of some bard, some bard wrote it, right? Some guy, <laughs> uh, William, William Shakespeare. Yeah, Billy. And as Shakespeare plays go, this is one of his kind of more famous plays, which you tend to see put on at yes. various festivals pretty regularly. But and I think that probably helped out a lot. But I think one other element kind of contributed to the film's success. And it's the way that Brana was both faithful to the source material as well as kind of made it his own. And one of the ways that he really did that was with the tone of the film, because it's it's a lot darker and grittier than, than the original play was. So, uh, and I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. I was just going to say, so when you're talking about the grittiness, that's actually something I really I enjoyed a lot. We can talk about that, I guess, in a little bit, but I thought the grittiness of it added a lot to the film. Oh, uh, so interestingly, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, tell me what you thought about the grittiness. Well, so as I kept watching it, I mean, this is one of those films that I had not seen. I'm not super familiar with 
Shakespeare. Like I say, we I studied Shakespeare in high school, like a lot of people did. I remember writing my first ever research paper on Shakespeare's sonnets way back then. I should say that I do have a master's degree in medieval history, but uh, my period of specialty was King Richard I and his crusade. So uh, this takes place quite a while after the period that I most studied back in uh, in grad school. But um, so this is a little bit out of my depth in terms of, of um, talking about Shakespeare and, and Shakespearean adaptations. But one thing I, I did like was the fact that even though you have all these speeches and, and moments of glory that make for great cinematic moments, talking about the, you know, fighting for king and country and the glories of battle and all these rousing speeches, it's contrasted against these gritty, dirty, violent scenes of war, which I, I think is really great. Like I, I love a lot of violent movies. I love a lot of war movies. Um, I get really moved when a great speech, like several of the ones he made here, or let's be honest, several of the ones that were in movies like Braveheart. Like it's just very inspiring and moving, but it's very interesting when a film can portray the real horrors of war and the fact that, you know, war is nasty and, and, and not a good, nothing. It's not a good thing. It's not something that should be, hoped for. Um, and so I thought this movie did a really interesting job of taking these like high minded, inspiring onward for King and country style speeches while at the same time contrasting them against all of the just gritty, dark imagery of conflict and violence. I agree. I think that's one of the, ways that this movie really succeeds uh, especially i think one of the ways you kind of see this in action the best is the battle of agincourt yes which really emphasize kind of the brutality of the of the war machine because you see this kind of shocking gore and it's highlighted by this quite literally dark overcast background and there's mud and even though Henry and his English troops ultimately do win that battle and, and kind of win the war, there's a great loss. And, and that's the cost. You know, there's a loss of human life. There are, are a lot of injuries. And the film really personalizes it as well. With there's one scene where. Uh, the luggage boy <laughs> uh, Robin who is portrayed by Christian Bale a very young Christian Bale very, I was surprised when his name popped up in the credits I was not expecting that so he's this kid and he gets killed in the battle which was supposedly forbidden right. and yeah. Captain Flewellen <laughs> who is played by Ian Holm Wonderfully played by Ian Holm. So uh, brilliantly. So, good. Uh, so he, uh, Flewellen, laments that. But right after that, you see Henry, the king, pick up Robin the luggage boy and carry him all the way across the battlefield and put him on the fire. And it's just kind of one of those moments where it, it personalizes this character throughout the film, and then you see this like kid die and i i thought kind of that really gave a, a nice dark tone to the film that like you were like you were saying contrasted well with a lot of the 
speeches about like for king and country and for honor. Yeah, the scene where it's not just Robin the luggage boy, like all the young boys who are with the the kind of the train um, are killed. Uh, and that was actually the scene that made me think that about just like the real kind of dark side of war and the way they were showing it is like they're all sitting around and just so sad because there's just this image of all these like murdered young boys that yeah weren't we're not supposed to be killed in the battle uh and 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 ian holm is delivering this really emotional speech about how upsetting it is and how what a shame it is and it just like i don't know it really drove that point home that was the scene that actually really got me thinking about that same that i and i i think it was very successful in that regard and uh one and then right after that of course you see the king carrying robin across the battlefield and he looks really miserable and apparently uh i'm sure some of that was acting and kind of lamenting his death but apparently carrying the corpse of christian bale across gave Bronn a terrible back pain no doubt because he was just carrying this dead weight across this long tracking shot and so the pained look on his face apparently was real and it was not entirely acting you know but stuff like that really really shows up on camera very well um but yeah and also that was very moving uh the scene of this of this king you know who has just kind of been successful in his in his war effort carrying this young boy you know, all, all that long distance was very touching. Yeah, it, it was incredibly sentimental. And I think another purpose that some of the grim aspects served was to paint a very nuanced picture of Henry V. Yes. And a few other scenes that kind of accomplished the same thing. One was seeing Falstaff die which was not actually in Henry V. It's talked about in the play, but you actually don't see his death in Shakespeare's play. Brana added that in for dramatic effect. And I, hate, I hate to ask this, but I hate to ask this. Which one was Falstaff? Oh, so he was the uh, jolly guy in the pub. He has the mustache. Oh, and the he, knight. Uh, no, not not a knight. He He was in the pub. Uh, he and Henry were friends when Henry was a teenager before he rose to gotcha. his, uh, the throne when he was called Prince Hal and would hang out in pubs and party until the late hours. And, and Falstaff was his friend. And there's that kind of flashback where Falstaff says, you know, shun pistol, but don't shun Falstaff. Right. And you hear Henry say, I will, I shall. Right, right, right. Uh, so that I thought was kind of a nice way of adding a little bit more of a, a darker tone and adding an emotional feel to the film. And then uh, also Bardolph's hanging because Bardolph was friends with Henry and he's caught stealing. And the punishment for stealing was death by hanging. And Henry goes along with it. Uh, he issues the command to hang him. And you can see him crying. But that, I thought, was kind of a, a neat scene to have in there. Because it's not actually in the original play. It's alluded to, but it's supposed to happen off screen. The hanging is not in the play either? 
No, it's not. It's talked oh, wow. about, but it, you don't actually see it. And I think having that visual and the the kind of pained look on Henry's face when he's kind of mulling over the decision of whether to do it or not, and the tears after Bardolph hangs, I thought kind of were a good way to explore the complex character of of Henry because he he was very resolute, and that kind of was one of the reasons that his troops loved him so much because once he committed to something, he went all in, even if he didn't necessarily want to do that or kind of had other feelings such as in that case where he hangs Bart off and you can kind of tell that he wants to save him, but feels like he kind of has to. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I'm really surprised to, to hear that that scene in particular wasn't in the play. Obviously I know next to nothing about the actual play. Um, so I was really surprised to hear you say that that wasn't in, in it because it was really one of the most moving scenes in the film for me. It was one of the ones that inspired the most emotion was that particular scene. Like you said, just the seeing and like you can see it in Brownell's face who did a wonderful job acting in this film, but you can see just the conflict and the turmoil portrayed in his, in his expression and his face. Uh, and there's that moment where they kind of like make, you know, make eyes at each other and you can tell that um, I'm going to mess up all their names, but Bardolph thinks that, uh, that Henry is going to save him. And I think a thing that adds another and, and, cutting through the Shakespearean language was at times a bit difficult for me. So I, I hope that I didn't miss meanings of any things when I was trying to wade through the very florid uh, language. But another thing that kind of adds a little bit to the scene is that he's being executed for, well, I think stealing from a church, but basically he, he Henry apparently had forbidden his um, soldiers from what I understood from stealing as they went through France on their way, um, you know, to, to contest the throne, I guess either maybe so that they wouldn't make a bad name with themselves among the local populace because he's trying to put himself on their throne or just so as not to disrespect the country that he is claiming as his own. Um, so he, you know, he was, he was hung for stealing, but also specifically for stealing, you know, from the French along the way. Yeah. And I I believe that was, uh, the ban against stealing was like you said, because he hoped to be on the throne of France, but also because there's this kind of juxtaposition throughout the film of the, of Henry as the warrior King, as well as, as just kind of a good man. Right. Which I thought played out brilliantly. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned the language what did you think of the of the script and kind of bringing Shakespeare's words f- from the page to the screen? Well, as somebody who's not super well versed with the play, I can tell you that the two the two scenes that you just mentioned that apparently weren't even in the original play that made it to the screen, I didn't even realize that we were looking at stuff that wasn't in the original source material. So they did such a good job of translating it to the screen that I just assumed that all of that was in the original play. So obviously they did a really good job of that. Um, 
Yeah, I thought it was really great. I mean, and we were talking a little bit before on Mike about how the Shakespearean language, I hate to say it was, it was a little bit of a, of a struggle at first. It's like I told you earlier, it's like being it's like being splashed into a into a lake of ice water. Uh, and, and you're just like, wait, what is anyone saying? Because it's so far removed from the way that we talk today that we are used to seeing in films. And so there was just this when I first started watching it, I knew they were speaking the same language that I speak, but I just had to keep going back and keep going back. I, I turned the closed captions on. And so I was able to follow pretty well with that. But even then they were speaking in, in this high, you know, Shakespearean English and they were doing it so quickly that at times it was, I was just like, I think I understand the gist of what's going on here. It was a, uh, it could be a real struggle, but you know, at the same time, I started thinking the only way to get around that would be to put it into more contemporary English, which you could do and has been done and, and can be done well. But that wasn't what was being done here. I mean, intentionally, obviously, they were trying to stay very true to the source material and to because, I mean, Shakespeare is famous for his words, right? That's why he's so widely studied is for his language and his gift with words. So you wouldn't want to lose that in the uh, in the adaptation so no i thought it was uh fantastic it, it it was a little bit of a of a slog for us sometimes to to figure out what they were saying but at the same time it was just so beautifully worded like i wouldn't have wanted it any other way uh, i i agree i'm i'm glad that the decision was made to keep it in the original diction but <laughs> i agree at, at times it was a little obtuse especially at the beginning yeah, once you got used to it after a while, you know, it, it made it, it became a little easier after you'd kind of been in that world for a little while. It became a little easier. Controversial opinion. I'm going to say here that one of my big complaints that I always lodge against Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films is the the way that he took some freedoms with the the wording. I grew up with those books and I just thought those Lord of the Rings books were so wonderfully written. And there are times that um, Peter Jackson chose to make the language more contemporary and more, I guess, more suited to modern audiences. And I think you lose some of the drama and some of the impact there. So I, I'm really glad that they didn't do that here. I, I, I like the way that they chose to go with the original language. That's why I always watch Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy with the uh, Elven subtitles on. Sure. You have to, you have to. It's obligatory. Uh, so I actually had one issue when I sat down to watch this. I'm about to get all film geek technical, but it the audio was just super low. And I came to realize that it was a two channel oh. source and it was piping it through my 5.1. And uh, I'm never kind of a fan of those like matrix uh, up conversions to try to pipe a two channel audio track into a surround sound. So I ended up just having to like really crank up the center channel so I could hear the dialogue a little bit better. I, I don't, I don't mess with a lot of that stuff. So I really, I didn't have that situation. I just was basically the whole time just trying to follow the language. <laughs> uh, and, you know, kind of on that, on that same note of the language being kept original, I thought the costumes were, were pretty phenomenal. Yeah, outstanding. And, and I even liked that a lot of the sets that were used were pretty confined 
for the most part, aside from kind of some of the outdoor scenes, especially particularly the Battle of Agincourt, because even the kind of confined set pieces, I thought, kind of gave almost a play-like vibe to the film. Definitely. And especially when paired with the chorus, who was portrayed by uh, Derek Jacoby, uh, I, I kind of liked the way that it maintained that same play atmosphere where there were kind of interludes and the chorus would come in and speak a little bit. I loved that. The character of the chorus, A, was done wonderfully by uh, his first name, Derek, right? Derek Jacoby. Uh, I... I yeah, uh, I just thought that was awesome. Anytime the chorus would come on screen, I was like, "This is great." The I really liked all those bits of dialogue. I just thought keeping that aspect and, like you said, it gave it that play like atmosphere. Especially the choice to have the chorus dressed in contemporary clothing, you know. So he's walking around in basically uh, current day for the late '80s clothing, uh, you know, and then the rest of everybody is characters in the play, and they're all dressed in their in their uh, period attire. And I just thought that was just a really wonderful choice. And it really gave added a lot to the atmosphere of the film. And I agree with you the the small sets and the small set pieces also added that atmosphere. Yeah, it was it was a nice little touch. Um, and I mean, you got to give Brana credit. This was his directorial debut. And I, I feel like he just that. kind of hit on. I just feel like he kind of hit on everything that he needed to. Yeah, it was truly amazing. And I found myself at one point thinking like, I, I don't want to knock plays, obviously, because there's nothing wrong with a play. I, I like to see a good play, but I mean, you know, film is something that I really like. And I just kept thinking like, man, this, the putting it into the format of a film just does so much for this work, like for this source material. You're able to take it from something that I'm sure I've never seen Henry V performed on stage, but something I'm sure is amazing on stage, but then see it so fleshed out in a film and mu- and much more realistic, you know, in the way it's portrayed. I, I just really m- remember thinking like, this is just really a great medium for this story. Yeah, it definitely benefited from that kind of play film fusion atmosphere that it had. And so speaking of Shakespearean film adaptations, have you seen many others? I... Well, so I don't think so. When you were asking me about that earlier, I, I feel so bad. I feel like I'm sounding like the uh, like the the uninformed viewer here, but I, I not I don't think so. I so I mentioned earlier I've seen um, Branagh's Hamlet, but it's been quite some time. I remember really enjoying that. I saw you know when I was in high school, the Leonardo DiCaprio Romeo and Juliet was very um, popular. It was not something I ever really got super into, but it was super popular at the time. Um, you mentioned one earlier that is a more modern adaptation that I really do like, which is 10 Things I Hate About You. I'm sorry to step on your uh, step on your uh, find there because you're the one that mentioned it to me. I'd forgotten all about that one. Uh, but yeah, other than those, I can't really think of any. I think I saw a Mel Gibson Shakespeare adaptation at one point. And then also, as I told you earlier, I there's a special place in my heart for the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger Hamlet part in Last Action Hero. Uh, <laughs> that always holds a special place in my heart when he says, to be or not to be, not to be. 
It's just a really so that's one of my favorite film adaptations of Shakespeare. I still need to watch The Last Action Hero. I just can't wait to hear what you think about it when you see it. Uh, but there are quite a few Shakespeare adaptations on film, including there have been multiple versions of Macbeth. One in 2015 was excellent. And then there was a 1971 version, and I think that one was directed by Polanski. There was a 1995 release of Othello, Merchant of Venice in 2004. Uh, there was Branagh's Hamlet in 96. You mentioned a Shakespearean adaptation with Mel Gibson, and you're probably thinking of the 1990 Hamlet, which also starred Ian Holm. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing and, and Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, all of those have had a decent number of adaptations. And Branagh himself actually has acted in and directed a lot of Shakespearean adaptations. In addition to Henry V, he also starred in and directed Much Ado About Nothing, A Midwinter's Tale, The 96 Hamlet, As You Like It, and Love's Labor's Lost. Yeah, I always associate him with um, with Shakespeare. I think just because I, that's how I was first introduced to him in high school as as being a guy who had done a lot of Shakespeare. So whenever somebody says Branagh, that's that's always what I think of. I, looking through some of your show notes earlier was when I really kind of found out that he had done uh, so many other things. You mean it's not his critically acclaimed role as Doctor Arliss Lovelace in The Wild Wild West? You know, it's not. That's not the first thing I think of. <laughs> it does just crack me up that he was Arliss Loveless in the ill-fated Wild Wild West Will Smith blockbuster film. Uh, especially when you look at the rest of Branagh's repertoire. I always like that. I always think it's so funny when like a really like um, well-respected actor starts slumming it for a little bit. And I, I mean, you know, you, th- you have to think, is it for a, is it for a paycheck or did they just really <laughs> like the source material? I mean, how did that happen? I always think that's so fascinating. Yeah, I know. I, I love that. Um, so no, no disrespect to Brown for that. Well, and you know, Will Smith was a huge star when Wild Wild West came out. So I'm sure that before it came out, people thought it was going to be a smash hit. K.I. dragged my parents to go see that when it came out. I mean, hey, you know what? It may not have been a big hit critically, but I would guess that Will Smith and Brana as well got pretty decent paychecks from that. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I always think about the uh, line, Michael Caine, you know, was in Jaws 4, Jaws the Revenge, and it's a movie that I enjoy, but it's terrible. Uh, and somebody once asked him about the film and he's like, oh, I've never seen it, but I have seen the house that it built and it's spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that quote as well. That's that's one of my favorite Michael Caine quotes and, and just kind of film quotes in general. You know, sometimes you got a bill to pay. You guys got to avoid my uh, Michael Caine imitation just then. So you're welcome. <laughs> oh, no, please. Please do. Michael Caine. That's the best. That's the best I can do. <laughs> All right, with that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll keep breaking down Henry V. It was a time of courtiers and kings. 
It was the turning point for the English throne. May I, with right and conscience, make this claim. It was one of history's greatest adventures, led by a soldier who wouldn't retreat. Once more into the breach there, friends! Once more! A lover who wouldn't give up. Is it possible that I should love the enemy of France? But in loving me, you should love the friend of France. A leader who upheld justice. For when lenity and cruelty play for a kingdom, the gentler gamester is the soonest winner. A rebel who wouldn't give in. What say you? Will you yield? Now forth, Lord Constable, and princes all, and quickly bring us word of England's fall. A king who defied the odds to prove himself a man. This story shall the good man teach his son. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. The Samuel Goldwyn Company presents a bold new film by Kenneth Branagh, Henry V. All right, and we're back, and we're discussing Henry V, 1989, directed by Kenneth Branagh. And one of the reasons that I picked this film was to not only talk about the film itself, but to kind of delve a little bit into kind of Shakespeare's influence on other works. Because there are a lot of films that are based off of his plays that aren't direct adaptations. One that you mentioned earlier, Wes, was 10 Things I Hate About You. There's also Scotland PA, which I recently watched, which is basically a modernized version of Macbeth. She's the Man is based on Twelfth Night, I believe. The Lion King is pretty much Macbeth, which you don't really realize, especially when you're watching it as a kid. Uh, Just One of the Guys, I think, again, is Twelfth Night. Uh, Curse Always Ran is apparently based off of, I think, King Lear. And West Side Story, this is one that I did not realize. It's a play. It was originally a play, but there's a film adaptation of it. And that is based off of Romeo and Juliet. You know, just kind of swap the Capulets and the Montagues for the Jets and the Sharks. Uh, by the way, when you said ran, I just realized that I told you that Throne of Blood was one that I watched at the, was a Kurosawa that I watched at the Carolina a while back. And when you said that, it jogged my memory that actually Throne of Blood is a, uh, basically a, a remake of Macbeth that is transported to feudal Japan. So, yeah, so... Kurosawa's Throne of Blood is a is a Macbeth adaptation, basically. Yeah. So, or what do you think about kind of some of these modernized versions or movies that take a Shakespearean framework and then kind of make it their own? I mean, it's it's wild, really, if you think about 
a person like a, a character like a Shakespeare who wrote all these plays or did he? That's a, a debate for an, uh, an English literature <laughs> podcast. But, uh, you know, a guy like Shakespeare who wrote all these plays and then they have just become so influential that they have just basically permeated down to the core of worldwide entertainment. Right. I mean, we're sitting here talking about, you know, teen movies from the 90s that are based on Shakespeare and classic Kurosawa samurai movies that are based on Shakespeare. And then the Brownaw movies that we're talking about that are basically just, you know, faithful adaptations, period pieces. I mean, to me, it's just wild that that somebody can accomplish something like that that just so influences world culture. It's it's crazy to me, just a crazy thought. I mean, I'm sure it's something that seems very obvious, but when you sit down to think about it, it's just an amazing thing. Totally. And I think it makes sense because if you think about it, the plays that were being put on were effectively the equivalent of what we now have as films. And so I think it kind of makes a lot of sense. And I mean, there's a reason that Shakespeare's plays were so popular then and continue to be, even though sometimes the language might be a little bit obtuse and difficult to decipher for modern audiences if you take the general themes that he was discussing and kind of his narrative structure and infuse kind of more modern elements, then I think you get a really winning formula a lot of times. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're, you know, they're just timeless themes. Um, Cause really humanity, while we change and evolve and grow, there are core elements to our nature that are universal and timeless. And I mean, so I think Shakespeare managed to capture a lot of that. And, and a lot of those same themes obviously resonate even today, uh, just, you know, transported to our, to medium that are, that are more familiar to us. Totally. Uh, especially kind of a lot of his themes about love as well as kind of politics and things like that, I think translate incredibly well to uh, uh, the modern day. And it's just kind of neat looking at the variety of films that have borrowed a, a Shakespearean framework. I mean, you have everything from, like you were saying, kind of some of those teen comedies from the 90s to The Lion King and Nomeo and Juliet, which is, that one's pretty on the nose. Yeah, I don't think, I, I've not seen that one, but it sounds very interesting. I have not seen that one, but I did end up watching Sherlock Gnomes. Wow. And I must say it was actually, it was, it was pretty clever. When I saw Nomeo and Juliet in the, in the show notes, I thought it was a typo. <laughs> no, no, that one, it, it is a very real film. That's funny. Uh, but I, I haven't watched that one. Uh, I can recommend Sherlock Gnomes. That actually had a lot of references to Sherlock Holmes stories. And oh, I'm, I'm cool. a big, I'm a big Sherlock buff. Me too. Have we never discussed that? I don't. I don't know that we have, and in fact, we might have to. We might have to work in a, a Sherlock film. I love at some that. Point. I've got a favorite, so I'm excited about that. That would be that would be a lot of fun. And so we talked a little bit about some scenes earlier, but I was curious uh, about kind of favorite scenes. Yeah. 
You know, so this movie, I said, you know, I I was not really super familiar with the play. As far as I can remember, I'd never seen this film version before. But in a way, a lot of it seemed familiar because, as you said earlier, there are some really famous parts from the play that get represented all over the place. So obviously, um, we have talked about before on the podcast that one of my all-time favorite movies is Tombstone. And there's a scene in Tombstone when they're uh, in a theater and a character is um, doing the monologue, the St. Crispin's Day speech. Uh, so I had heard that speech many times in watching Tombstone, one of the thousands of times that I've seen that. Um, and then also the scene when Henry is disguised as a commoner and walking around um, visiting his troops, that there's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation because on that show, um, Data gets really into things like Shakespeare and also Sherlock Holmes uh, and goes to the holodeck and acts out Shakespearean plays. And there is a, an episode where it kind of starts with Data acting out that scene he uh, where King Henry is walking around and kind of in disguise talking to his, his soldiers. So I had seen, you know, that portrayed on screen many times before through that. Anyways, I guess I kind of got off on a tangent there, but a, a lot of these scenes did seem familiar to me just because they're so um, ubiquitous. But my favorite scene, I think, thinking about it a lot, I was going to say Bardolph's hanging because as we discussed earlier, that was very impactful to me. But I think overall my favorite scene in the film was when Henry went in disguise as a peasant and walked around visiting his his soldiers because it really served to humanize the character of Henry. I mean, this is a man who is the king of England. Uh, all these people have followed him across the sea to fight and possibly die away from their homelands. They've all followed him, and he kind of decides that he wants to be among them and kind of see what they're thinking uh, about him. Sure, they want to see what what he wants to see what they think about him, but also just about the battle and about how, you know, he just wants to be among them. And I just thought that was really humanizing. And then there's a part, he has this big, long argument with one of them about whether or not, you know, it's worth dying for the King and, and whether or not the King, you know, is a good man or cares about him. And you know, it's hard for me to get into the specifics of all that, but basically an argument about whether or not their cause is worth it, whether or not it's worth it to die here. And afterwards he kind of, walks off by himself and has this moment of reflection where you can tell he feels really torn because he thinks that his cause is just, he thinks that, you know, he's doing the right thing. But at the same time, he recognizes that he's asking people to basically sacrifice their lives to sacrifice everything for him. And I just thought it was a really impactful scene. That was one of the more brilliant scenes in the film. And I recall from back in the day reading that, scene and really enjoying it because I think you get a lot of insight into the character of Henry there and it really drives home the notion that he wants to be a a good king and he wants to have his country's best interests at heart and kind of know what the opinion what opinion the troops have of him uh, my favorite scene is, I, I'm guessing this is probably a lot of people's favorite scene, but I, the St. Crispin's Day speech. It was great. That's, it's, it's one of those benchmarks for theater, and Brana just absolutely pulls it off to perfection. I mean, I, you know, I was sitting there 
on my couch eating popcorn and, and like, you know, getting goosebumps and fist pumping in, in the air uh, because his energy is just really contagious during that scene. And he even kind of hits all the inflections correctly uh, because it starts off. I think it was Westmoreland expressed a desire to have kind of more reinforcements and Henry kind of strikes that down and says, no, I would not wish one man more, even though the English troops appear to be uh, completely outmanned by the French army. And then after the, after the battle, there's kind of a list of the casualties on both sides. And this is the battle of Agincourt and Henry's St. Crispin's day pep talk. Uh, apparently worked out really well because it was a very lopsided list of casualties. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was very moving and uh, it really reminded me a lot just in the kind of the way it was delivered and the impact that it had on me of the famous uh, freedom, uh, not freedom, uh, the famous speech that I guess he says freedom when he's being executed, but in Braveheart, the scene that um, William Wallace where he gives that big inspiring speech before they go into battle and Braveheart. I'm getting them all mixed up because I said freedom and that's later, but there's a very inspiring speech that he gives to lead the uh, Scottish against the English in that movie. So you mentioned Braveheart earlier and I, I have to confess I've never actually seen it. I'm what, very familiar with about? the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with the, with the plot, but yeah, no, I don't know. I've never seen Braveheart. That's just one of those movies that like, I guess I just assume that everyone has seen, but that's okay because there's movies that are like that that I haven't seen. Uh, but you definitely should watch Braveheart. You would uh, absolutely love it if you like this a lot. You're gonna love Braveheart. Uh, I will add that one to my list. Oh, you're gonna love it. Yeah. Um, so that I think was one of my favorite scenes, and then so you mentioned that you also kind of appreciated the uh, Bardolph's hanging, and I was curious. Like we discussed a little bit earlier, there were some changes that Barana made. And I was wondering if you felt like he kind of incorporated Bardolph and Pistol and Nim and Falstaff and some of King Henry's friends from when he was still a prince into the film well. Yeah, that was the only part really in having not been super familiar with the source material and not really seen a lot of adaptations before, I, I was a little confused about their inclusion. I mean, I, I got the, the, the gist of it. They did a fine job through flashbacks and through the, um, the first scene when you see them is when Falstaff is, um, dying upstairs and they're all kind of reminiscing in that, uh, in what looks like a, uh, an inn or a pub of some kind, but maybe it's just somebody's house. Um, but they are, um, I got, I understood from the flashbacks their relationships with each other for the most part and their relationships with Henry. But I was just, I felt like their storylines felt a little superfluous. Like they, they kind of felt like a, like a sideline part. I don't really know how else to say that. Like they did serve some purposes in sort of humanizing um, Harry, particularly with the uh, Bardolph's hanging and that kind of thing. But overall their side stories didn't really seem to go I don't, I don't want to say they didn't go anywhere, but they didn't go very far. Um, and maybe that's just from someone like myself who is is not seeing it 
in its original version, not seeing it on the stage. I don't know. That was just, that was kind of the one thing that seemed a little off to me. So I, I agree with you actually, even though, a, so some of the scenes were added in like Bardolph's hanging, but a lot of the others and Falstaff's death, but a lot of the other scenes actually were in the play. But I think the context that you're missing is their relationships from Henry the fourth parts one and two. And I think the flashbacks do serve to tell you kind of at a high level. Okay. So Henry knew Falstaff and Bardolph and Pistol and Nim from earlier and they were friends and you can clearly tell that there was some sort of kind of falling out and that their relationship has changed in a way. But I don't think that Henry V really explains why. And so I, I remembered because I've seen a few different adaptations of uh, Henry IV on film and, and on the stage and read it. But I think that could have been a little bit more clear. Yeah, it just kind of for for someone like myself who who wasn't super versed in the um, source material, it just kind of I don't know. It, it fell a little bit by the wayside, and and it definitely needed to be in there at least to some extent because it did show us some conflicts with Henry and kind of where you know it did show us a little bit about you. You kept getting references to his sort of wild past, his sort of wild upbringing. I mean, the the tennis balls thing at the first is sort of a mockery on him uh, and his kind of. Um, background from the the king of france or maybe from the prince of france but um but just some of it seemed to sort of fall by the wayside for me i don't know how else to say that uh, yeah i would agree with that i'm not sure how that could have been addressed yeah. without kind of adding new a bunch of new material well and and I don't know, just the way I am. I don't know that I would have really necessarily wanted it to be addressed. If that's what's in the play, I mean, then that's what then that's what he did. I mean, he was he was bringing the play to the screen. So I like you, I don't really know how that could have been fixed. Maybe that's just one of those kind of things. And it didn't detract from the film by any means. I mean, it was still a great film. Uh, and and I, if it was in the play, I wouldn't have wanted it left out really either. So, um, yeah, it was it was good with me. It just maybe it would probably benefited me to have some of the backstory. Yeah, because it does sort of rely a little bit on Henry the Fourth parts one and two, although you don't necessarily miss anything. It's not like you don't understand anything. I think you just don't quite benefit from the full effect of knowing yeah, this relationship. Right. Yeah, I understood all the relationships. It just kind of it seemed a little shallow because they didn't have as much time uh, to dedicate to it. And then, so speaking of kind of confusing things, so there's this one scene kind of early on in the film where Princess Catherine, who is portrayed by Emma Thompson, and fun fact, but Brana and Emma Thompson were actually married for a brief stint. And the two of them acted in several films together, including um, Much Ado About Nothing, and uh, dead again. Uh, but there's this one scene where Princess Catherine is speaking in French and there are no subtitles. And I'm so used to when there's a film that's like in English and then another language is spoken, there being subtitles and there were no subs. 
uh, and I think you were able to toggle the subs on. Yeah. And they I, were French. Yeah. But uh, boy, uh, at about 30 seconds into this, after trying to turn the subs on and failing, I realized, oh, you know what? This isn't intended for us to, if you don't speak French, really understand what's going on. Because you can glean that through context pretty well and you can see like, okay, so Princess Catherine is trying to learn English because she was engaged to Henry at one point and is sort of like kind of preparing for his arrival. So nerd alert, but the uh, a thing that kind of confused me was I said earlier that I studied medieval England in school and the period of time that I studied was much closer to when the English monarchy had come over from France, uh, from uh, Normandy and Anjou. And at that time, the English monarchy primarily spoke only French and not English. So at first I was a little confused about why the they were keeping the French speaking French, but not having the English king understand French. And then I realized that like 200 years had passed. So by that point, the English Kings had probably ditched the French and learned how to speak English. But that was a little confusing to me at first. Uh, the other thing that was confusing was, as you said, I did have on the subtitles. And so when she was speaking French, but the subtitles weren't in English, it took me a minute to realize what you were just saying, which is that we weren't really supposed to totally understand what she was saying. And I thought it, the scene, once I got over the initial confusion, actually was really well done yeah it was great i mean and i was able to follow everything that was going on now granted i have like one semester of french under my belt so i could pick out the occasional word anyway uh but but yeah i mean they did a great job through context and through you know the english words they did mix in you could follow what was going on yeah i mostly i was able to follow just through kind of the english words that were thrown in but I, having learned Spanish pretty well back in the day, I was able to pick up a few things, but not not everything. Now, one thing that I wanted to discuss a little bit was kind of the character of Henry. And I was curious, did you feel like he was likable? Did you feel like he was unlikable? Did you have any sort of stance on him? I thought he was a very likable character to the point where I kept thinking that it was kind of funny um, that the play seemed so pro monarchy. <laughs> like it seemed, it was very pro Henry. I mean, it makes sense. It's named Henry V. Uh, in this particular version, the director is also starring as Henry V. Uh, so, I mean, it made sense that it would be very pro Henry, but to me, yeah, it came off as very pro Henry. Henry, he came off as a very likable character. Uh, but also a very real character as we've discussed before. And that's something that I really liked, even though it did have this like strong kind of our King is good, uh, pro England, pro English King feel to it. He was portrayed as a com as a complex character. Uh, you know, he was someone who both wanted to be a good King, wanted to be a good leader, uh, wanted to be a good soldier, which he makes a big thing out of at the end, but also was concerned about about others. And like I said, that scene that I really like so much where he dresses himself up as a commoner and goes around the camps speaking to soldiers kind of really brought that home. So yeah, a very complicated and complex layered character. Yeah, uh, I and I thought that was kind of brilliantly portrayed there, the nuance that 
Henry has as a character. And Henry the Fourth deals with this a bit, kind of the character grappling between being a teenager and being a prince. And then that kind of same dichotomy is still present when he is King Henry, but this time it's sort of trying to be the courageous warrior king as well as being a a good person. And you can see that rift, I think, a few different times. One was the Battle of Harfleur, where Henry delivers this very impassioned threat. And then there's a surrender, and he instructs his troops to go in and fortify the city, but to be kind and not to loot or steal or anything. And similarly, I I think that scene that you brought up about going around and assessing the morale of his troops and their opinion of him as a king when he's in disguise, I think really kind of showed that he actually cared about his his country and it was apparent to the troops and that was one of the reasons that they kind of tended to have a a high regard for him even after bardolf is killed uh, i believe kind of pistol expresses to henry unbeknownst to him his admiration for the king even though henry hung one of his friends yeah, but and then of course you have um the character that he talks to not long after that who seems to have a lower opinion of him as a king which once again is very realistic. Some people are going to like you, some people are not going to like you. Uh so that sort of once again added to the depth of who Henry is and who how he's viewed by his men. Yeah, and he makes a lot of choices that you don't necessarily you don't always agree with the choices, but you still kind of respect him for that. And one area that uh, Brana expanded upon was actually Montjoy's role. Because originally Montjoy, he is kind of the assistant to the French Dauphine. And Montjoy was barely in the play, but he gets a much larger role as a supporting character in Henry V. And to me, it seemed like even though Montjoy was the French Herald, he showed a lot of respect for Henry. And so I think that was just kind of another way to show that it wasn't just uh, the British that kind of held him in very high regard, but it was even his, his foes. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I think it also served as a good contrast between uh, the character of Henry and the character of the Dauphine. Uh, you know, you have Henry out there fighting on the front lines with his troops. I mean, he's among them, literally bathed in blood, fighting uh, with his with his soldiers. And there's another scene earlier on where the the Dauphine, the prince of the prince of France, uh, is bragging all big about his horses and his armor and whatever. And kind of one of his men starts starts kind of jibing him a little bit and. Uh, And then he kind of storms out and is like, well, I'm going to go get my armor ready. And one of the other guys says something about his armor. And and that guy's like, oh, he he never does anything in battle. Like, he's not going to do anything. Don't worry about it. So you can kind of tell, like, his men don't really seem to have a lot of respect for him because he is kind of not one of them. Absolutely correct. 
And I think that also just speaks to Henry's dedication. He started this war and he wasn't just going to send his men out to die. He was going to be right out there with them until the bitter end. And, you know, at the when the Battle of Agincourt is over, he's even, you know, carrying dead bodies over to the fire. That's another one for the fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, we're recording this on George Romero's birthday, so... Uh, oh, <laughs> not nice. To th- nice to throw in a, a little Romero reference there for for those listeners who did not get that reference. That was a little, uh, a little reference to Night of the Living Dead, the original. And if, and you, did, if, if you didn't get the reference, <laughs> go back and listen to our October spooky Halloween episode all about it, as well as check out the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. You should do that, too. You should watch the movie first and then listen to our episode. Uh, But. With that, you want to rate this bad boy? Surely. I feel prepared to rate this movie. I think I had come into it ready to give it a certain rating, and I think I'm actually going to bump it up a little bit. I think I'm going to give this movie a four on a scale of zero to five stars. Um, You know, because in a way, it's not the kind of movie that I watch a lot. It's not really a go-to. I mean, I love all the medieval stuff, obviously. I studied it in school. Uh, I'm big on like fantasy, sword and sorcery, all that stuff. So all the knights and battles and everything is my my jam. But, the, but you know, I don't watch a lot of uh, Shakespeare adaptations, as we've said throughout the episode. So at first, anyway, I was coming in a little a little more lukewarm. But just kind of after seeing the film, after watching especially the final scenes um, and having our discussion today, I'm, I'm giving it a four. I just think... For what it is, you know, for for an an adaptation of a play written long, long ago, um, it's a very faithful adaptation. It's very well acted. It's very well done. I mean, there were some standout performances in this, not only from Branagh, but from Ian Holm. Really, just really impressed me as Flewellen. I thought he was so good, but he he's always good. Um, the score was really great. We didn't talk much about, but the, the music added a lot to it. I just... I just thought it was a really fantastic adaptation. So uh, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, but this uh, this adaptation gets a thumbs up for me. I enjoyed it. I am going to go kind of similar to you, except I'm going to go with a 4.5. I think it can be really difficult to adapt Shakespeare from the stage to the screen. And I think this movie does it incredibly well. And even kind of maintains some of the play elements with a lot of the confined set pieces. And it's faithful enough to the original source material while also kind of sprinkling in some new material, such as taking a bit of a darker and and more grim tone and depicting some events on screen that in the original play happened off stage uh, and i think it's just really impressive especially when you consider that this was Branagh's directorial debut and like you mentioned there are some just absolutely phenomenal performances in here we talked a lot about brana but like you said ian holm was incredible in this and would go on to act in the 1990 hamlet film which starred mel gibson uh, and so, yeah, I just think it's kind of a very well-rounded movie. I think some of the 
relationships with a few of the pa- uh, characters like Bardolph and Nim and Pistol and Falstaff, you kind of get at a high level what's going on, but I think that could have been improved a little bit. And because there's some context that you're not getting if you haven't read Henry the Fourth Parts One and Two. But overall, I think this is a marvelous film, and uh, it might be my favorite Shakespearean film adaptation. Yeah, it's really good. It kind of has me wanting to go back and revisit the uh, Brenau Hamlet, which I always said was my favorite adaptation. Not that I have a ton to choose from because I've not seen a lot of them, but I really remember enjoying that one. Of course, now that we're we did our list earlier and I realized that Kurosawa's throne of blood was an adaptation. I remember really liking that one a lot too. I feel like you're sort of obliged to, to rewatch throne of blood. Yeah. I mean, especially with the Japanese film kick I've been on lately, probably I should just go through a whole Kurosawa thing. Oh, that, that would be, that'd be pretty fun. I would also really recommend the 1990s Hamlet. I think that was directed by Zeffirelli and, uh, Mel Gibson gives just a standout performance as Hamlet because there's kind of a a bit of a fallacy that a lot of readers have about thinking that he's just super melancholy and actually the character of Hamlet was really manic and Gibson really gives that energy incredibly well. I mean, you know, if the English teacher in Last Action Hero is to be believed, then Hamlet <laughs> is the first action hero. <laughs> <laughs> Who said I'm fear? Uh, I think that's the uh, authority on on all literature, right there. Uh, Last Action Hero is a special film, so. And that one, I I still need to get around to watching. Maybe maybe we'll review that one. I would love that. But that is our show for the evening. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you haven't already done so, you know what really helps us out head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or Google podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to follow us, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at celluloid fiends, as well as celluloid fiends pod on Instagram. And if you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C long on Twitter and Instagram. And I write about tech at techoflife.com. And you can read my film reviews at cupofmo.com. And Celluloid Fiends, this is Wes Clifton's Clifton, Wes Clifton signing out for the <laughs> evening. I can pronounce I can pronounce my own name. Uh, so yeah, as Mo was saying, it really helps us out if you can leave a rating review on iTunes. Another thing you can really do if you want to help us uh, spread around and spread the word, uh, is you can tell a friend that loves films about this podcast. Uh, but yeah, so you can find me, Wes Clifton, on uh, Instagram at Cliff Weston. If you'd like to check out some of my writing, you can do so at wdclifton.wordpress.com. And remember, celluloid fiends, be kind, rewind. Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please stop it, stop it now. Turn it off, turn it off. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop it! Stop it!